So I'm sure some of you know this quote from Kalu Rinpoche. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. First time I heard that or read that, actually, my response was, huh? But he is pointing to something very fundamental about our situation. That most of the time we live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live somewhat superficially, a little disconnected from what's actually happening. And of course, these teachings are all about waking up. That's what even the word Buddha means, is to be awake, the awakened one. And it's to wake up to reality, to the way things actually are, to see clearly. And what this quote goes on to say is, there is a reality, and you are that reality. So it's pointing to an inherent lack of separation, but most of the time we're not in that place. We're in that kind of superficial, somewhat floaty kind of place. And this is, in some ways, you could see as our core problem, the core issue um, in our lives and our practice, and that is that of delusion. Moha is the word in Pali. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, delusion. Now you've heard us say, and you know the teachings are that the, the cause of suffering, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is tanha, the Pali word, usually translated as craving or thirst. But I think there's a way in which this um, aspect of mind or experience of delusion is more fundamental and in some ways more a uh, significant cause of our dukkha, of our suffering, than even craving is. Because if we weren't in this state of delusion, we wouldn't crave in the same way. We wouldn't have this idea that somewhere out there was something that was going to make me happy. And we wouldn't be in contention with the way things are all the time. We wouldn't be denying our experience or how what's happening in the world. I spoke in my first talk about the teachings on right view. This is the um, teachings that the Buddha started the Noble Eightfold Path with. It's the first path factor of right view. And right view basically means seeing clearly. And uh, it's characterized by understanding the Four Noble Truths, understanding the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, understanding uh, the, the law of karma that Guy will probably talk about soon. This is what right view is. Its, it's very definition is, though, in all of these, seeing clearly, seeing the Dhamma in, in that meaning of the truth of things as we become more in alignment with right view, um, all of the other wholesome, wholesome path factors can follow. But if we're in wrong view, mitcha ditti, wrong view, um, then we're living out of delusion. And it's very hard to cultivate 
the path and the practice if there's wrong view. And of course, wrong view is extensive. It's basically any view that we hold on to as, as a with a sense of dogma or fixedness. I'm right and you're wrong kind of thing. So our practice and the teachings are really always pointing to see more clearly, to see more accurately what's actually happening, to see the truth of things. Delusion is one of the kalesas, this group of three, uh, the translation is often torments of mind or poisons, these three fundamental causes of suffering. Again, the shorthand usually is craving, but as we've said, Carol gave a whole talk on this, how craving includes the almost opposite movement of aversion, but delusion is woven in there, is, is a significant part of this trio. And we talk a lot about greed and aversion. You know, gave a whole talk on greed, aversion in its, in its manifestation and difficult emotions and the hindrances. We talk a lot about. We don't talk so much about delusion because it's so difficult to actually put a finger on. Because it has this, ver its very nature is confusing, is hard to pinpoint, is hard to actually be clear about. But we can know that delusion is happening any time that we're out of touch with reality, where we're in denial or disconnected, confused, when we're not really here. And we can see, if you look at all three of the Kalesas, they're all basically strategies to avoid suffering. So greed or craving tries to cling to what's pleasant, to hold on to that. Aversion pushes away what's unpleasant, doesn't want to suffer in that way. Delusion, its activity is to avoid or disconnect with what's happening. It, and fundamentally, in, when we're deluded, we don't understand the causes of suffering. That's a fundamental delusion, not to understand what's causing a suffering, you know, to, to actually keep perpetuating the causes of suffering through our delusion. Shanti Deva has this great line, we hate suffering, but we love the causes of suffering. <laughs> That's delusion. We hate suffering, but we love the causes of suffering. So it's important to work with this tendency, this kalesa of delusion, because the wholesome states that we've talked about a lot, they can only arise and be cultivated when we're not lost in these hindrances and kalesas, when we're not driven by them. So we need to see clearly the operating of delusion. But as I said, it's, it's really hard to see. It's kind of like a chameleon delusion. It hides in and masquerades as the other hindrances or uh, kalesas. You know, greed and aversion, even though we can be lost in them and identified with them, we usually have a bit of a sense of what's going on. And sometimes a really clear sense. We can just see this movement of wanting or pushing away. But delusion is much more difficult to see. So I'll talk tonight about um, ways we might be able to begin to notice when it's operating. And want to begin with one way that's been helpful for many of us and that's a teaching that's in this big book 
called the Vasudhimaga. It's in one volume. It's a f- quite a few inches thick. It was written in about the 5th century by um, uh, Acharya Buddha Gosha, was a very well-respected scholar of that time. The tr- translation of Vasudhimaga is Path of Purification. And it's a whole manual of Buddhist doctrine, teachings, and practices. Really goes into a lot of depth about the unfolding of the path, a lot about concentration practices. But it has this whole teaching on what we now call the three character types. There are actually a few other character types mentioned, but they're not so helpful or relevant for us in my talk tonight. So this is um, a teaching or explication of these three character types. And these are a very simple Buddhist psychology. You know, it's not Freud or Jung or, you know, transpersonal or anything, really basic. But in its simplicity, it can actually be very helpful and revealing for us. What this psychology says is that in each of us, one or the other of these three kalesas will be more predominant. Of course, all of us have all three, and at different times, different ones will express themselves depending on conditions and our states of mind or whatever. But just in a general way, that one of these will tend to predominate. So the question always is, well, then which one am I, you know, if there's one of these three? Well, uh, I heard someone say that you can kind of tell which one you are by how you react about hearing about them for the first time. So the greedy type says, oh, I want to know all about these so I can figure them out. Which one am I? Maybe I can really use this to understand, you know, how my mind works. And the aversive type says, I don't believe this. These types don't define me. You know, who do they think they are? This doesn't apply to me. That's not how I work at all. You know, just that kind of pushing away of the teaching. And of course, the deluded type says, which one am I? What are, what are they talking about? You know, what, what does this mean to me? I, I, don't, I don't get it. Again, these are very simple generalizations, but that's uh, kind of how you can tell. And, you know, you don't need to figure out which one you are. Many of you may know you've heard about this before. Um, only use it if it's helpful. And as I said, again, this is not some place to land or identify, or oh, I'm deluded, you're greedy, and that's how it is. That, it's not that simple, you know. But it does help if you know these tendencies. It depersonalizes these attitudes of mind and these responses a little bit. I know it's been really helpful to me to look at it in this way, to understand my own direct, uh, reactions and the reactions of others. And it's just allowed me a little more space about um, how I tend to be in the world and how others tend to be. You can just sometimes say, oh, it's just they're just being aversive or it's just their greedy nature coming out. So it just kind of as I said, makes more space around it. So there are descriptions in this text of a Sudhimaga that Buddha Gosha said you can use to help determine which type you are. Again, this was written in the 5th century. I don't know, you know, minds are basically the same, but these aren't that helpful, but I'll read them to you just to, so you can get a sense of <laughs> what's going on, what they thought was going on. Perhaps you can relate, who knows. So he says that one can tell 
which temperament you are by your posture, by your, your, how you are in the world, how you eat, how you sleep, etc. So this, is, this goes on for pages. I've just excerpted little bits. So the one of greedy temperament walks carefully, places her foot down slowly, puts it down evenly, lifts it up evenly, and her step is springy. Aversive temperament walks as though he were digging with the points of his feet, puts his foot down quickly, lifts it up quickly, and his step is dragged along. One of deluded temperament walks with a perplexed gait, puts her foot down hesitantly, lifts it up hesitantly, and her step is pressed down suddenly. The stance of a greedy type is confident and graceful. Now, I always felt reading this that, I, that Buddha Gosa must have been a greed type because they get the best press in this. It's always like, they say, I want to be a greed type. They sound, but hold, don't hold on to that opinion just yet. There's a kicker at the end. The stance of a greedy type is confident and graceful. That of the aversive is rigid. That of a deluded is muddled. I don't know what that means, but likewise in sitting, a greedy type spreads his bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing his limbs, and sleeps in a confident manner. When woken, instead of getting up quickly, he gives his answer as though doubtful. Aversive type spreads his bed hastily anyhow. With her body flung down, he, she sleeps with a scowl. When woken, she gets up quickly and answers as though annoyed. The deluded type spreads his bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downwards with his body sprawling. When woken, he gets up slowly, saying, hmm? <laughs> and goes on to talk about how they sweep and how they e eat and how they see things. So, you know, if that's helpful, you can perhaps determine. I, I didn't find that so helpful for me. But there are some basic things that you can kind of tune into to tell which character type you might be. And the, a simple one is your attitude on meeting new experiences, going into new places, meeting new people. Aversive types tend to more easily notice what's wrong, what they don't like, what's not working, what's not beautiful, etc. Greedy types tend to, as you can imagine, just notice what's beautiful, what's great, what's wonderful, what's perfect, what's, what's fabulous about the place or the person that they're meeting. And the deluded type often doesn't even know that something new has happened. They're just kind of <laughs> wandering a bit in a fog, you know, where am I kind of thing. Or, you know, basically they don't know, you know, they don't notice that something has changed or that there's some new part of a, of a room or whatever that they've gone into. But now to get to the payback that I spoke about a minute earlier, the reason that Buddha Gosha said it was helpful to know this about oneself is that um, different types of meditation practices and conditions are more supportive uh, for the different character types. So, if one is a greedy type, and I'm sure a moment ago you're all wanting to be greed types, here is the meditation hut that you should have. A decrepit shack, <laughs> splattered with dirt, full of bats, bleak, threatened by lions and tigers. <laughs> Bed and chairs are full of bugs. Your garments should have torn off edges with threads hanging down, harsh to the touch, soiled and hard to wear. 
So the basic movement here, of course, is balancing. You know, if someone has a greedy temperament, they're always looking for what's beautiful, it needs to be balanced a bit so they can't find that sense of satisfaction just through their surroundings. Whereas the aversive type should have a well-proportioned, bright room with various kinds of paintings, adorned with flowers, with a canopy of colored cloth, pretty sweet-smelling, and it makes one happy and glad at the mere sight of it. <laughs> Clothing should be of the finest cloth, again, to balance this tendency towards noticing what's wrong. Whereas the deluded type, and I actually think this is really interesting, the deluded type needs a place with a view. It should be spacious and very simple, with not a lot of things in it, so the mind can kind of be in a restful and easy place. shouldn't be confined, and it should also be beautiful. So it kind of balances out in the end. As I said, this is not about you know, identifying I'm this way, you're that way, but just to notice these tendencies, to know, as I said, we all have each three of these. They're, that's why they're called the kalesas. They're these fundamental movements of mind, of ways we categorize or ways we try to relate to experience. But seeing in this way, seeing this tendency, when, we, when it can help us to depersonalize, to kind of get a little space around what's happening, either for us or others, just makes it easier to understand what's happening. For myself personally, I used to think I was a deluded type. I, and I was quite happy being a deluded type. Um, I, you know, because I couldn't decide which one I was, so I kind of figured that's probably what I was. I didn't think I had very strong opinions on things. <laughs> I've grown since then. But... Dear friends and close partners and husbands um, convinced me that perhaps I wasn't a deluded type after all, that I might be an aversive type. <laughs> and I've had to come to actually agree with their conclusions. Um, I still have a strong streak of delusion, but <laughs> I, I, I do think that that's probably where I land. And so I have to be really aware of that. I mean, there's, there's you know, really um, positive things about the aversive types, the clear seeing, but this tendency to be critical, it, I, it's really uh, brought more awareness to that in, you know, how I relate to myself particularly, but in my relationships to others and, you know, in things like meetings where people are, you know, we're having discussions and debates and people suggesting new things. And it can be so easy to say what's not going to work in a new idea or a new proposal and really have to have more awareness of, of being open to um, these new ideas because sometimes someone else might actually have a good idea. You never know. <laughs> And all of these types have positive aspects to them. The, the greedy types tend to be generous. You know, they love beauty. They're kind of fun to hang, hang around because they're always thinking up exciting and good things to do. Um, for the aversive types, they're really willing to be with you wherever you are, even in the difficult places. They're willing to actually um, work with what's tough about a situation, about... Um, 
and experience, and they have a lot of discerning wisdom. I mean, that's if you want help or you want an answer or you want to get something done, that's where you go, you know, to someone who's got that kind of temperament. And the deluded type have a lot of equanimity. They're really very spacious. They're great to travel with because it's kind of like you can... You don't need to ha worry about someone having strong opinions. And, you know, again, depending on our circumstances, we can find ourselves very much in one or the other of these. It's not something that's constant, that, that we're always only one. So that's what we have to be aware of. Now, as well as these kind of personalized way of the kalesas manifesting, there's also more fundamental ways that we all as human beings share. And the Buddha talked about these uh, delusions, these classic delusions in a, sh a short sutta called the Vipalasa Sutta. Um, and it's just, the translation is distortions of mind or perversions of mind. They're misperceptions. And he says that there are these four classic misperceptions, these four classic delusions that most of us operate under most of the time. And they are taking what is permanent, what is, sorry, what is impermanent, anicca, to be permanent. And we see how we do this around our body, around our moods and emotions. You know, the hindrances come up and we're in aversion or doubt. And we just think this is the way it is. You know, this is who I am. We identify with it. And it's not so. This is not the way it is. Taking what is unsatisfactory, what is dukkha, to be a source of happiness. And again, through our unwillingness to see the impermanence, we hold on to things that can't give us lasting happiness and try to make them a source of happiness. This is a classic delusion. We relate to what is without self as having a self. I spoke the other night about the aggregates, how we take each one of those, of the body or Vedana, the feeling tone, and make it me, make it I, make it mine. It's a classic delusion. And taking what is not beautiful, what is unlovely, to be beautiful or lovely. And the classic teaching on this is in the first foundation of mindfulness called the Asubha practices, where you know the Buddha, speaking mainly to monastics and renunciates, talked about how we get obsessed with this body and the beauty of the body or other people's bodies. And he said, look at its nature. You know, its nature actually has all of these characteristics, not just the external outer layer, but the blood and pus and phlegm and mucus and bile and feces, etc. So really to see clearly. All of these are about, again, seeing clearly, not getting lost in the superficial aspects of things, not getting lost in our ideas or our wanting, but actually seeing more clearly. So there's some of the classic ways that delusion is spoken about in the suttas. But there are more personal ways or more um, everyday ways that we also get lost in delusion. As I said earlier, just this function or this experience of being a little bit in a fog, a little bit lost, a little bit spaced out, when we disconnected from what we're feeling, we're just not fully present. 
is a classic definition of delusion, and that's doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. You know that where you know we keep trying, we keep trying to get happiness from a place happiness can't be found, or you know caught in a certain mindset, a hab- habitual reaction, and wonder why we end up being depressed or unhappy. Rumi has this great little quote, not quite a poem. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. This is delusion. And it's often where we find ourselves not quite knowing how, what's happening, what we're meant to be doing, what, what the truth of things is for us. I've talked a couple of times about uh, this program I've been leading called the Dedicated Practitioners Program, DPP. And in, those, in that program, the retreats aren't silent, they're interactive, and we do sessions on all these different teachings and try to make them very engaged and, and, and uh, interactive. So to explore this teaching on um, the kalesas, we looked at it through the lens of the character type. So we had a session on each of the the kalesas and then the character types. And to do that, to explore that, we got self-identified representatives of each of the um, character types to come up and have what we call a panel. A panel is, you know, where you get these people to come up and you ask them questions about how they relate to the, the experience in the world and it kind of um, shows the nature of that particular type. And so it was fascinating, you know, to get a group of greedy types or a group of aversive types and then a group of deluded types up here in this hall and see how the world looks through their eyes. And you just get to see, even though the slightly different manifestation, this tendency running through these people and again, not personal. It's just this kind of energy and how it would manifest through them. So, you know, we had this panel of deluded types up here and asked them questions like things like, you know, how is it for you to go shopping? And they would all kind of writhe and go, oh, I hate shopping. I hate shopping. You know, I can't shop. I, I can't make up my mind. You know, I have to have a list. If I don't have a list, I'm lost. And, you know, I go in to get one thing and I come out with 10 other things. And, you know, just all of, they all had exactly the same response to, to going shopping. And one man who was speaking, um, he's, you know, I know him and he's a very bright uh, person. And, you know, being a deluded type doesn't mean you're not intelligent, doesn't mean anything about that aspect of functioning. He's in charge of this huge organization, a very um, important organization with a lot of pressure in his job. Um, and he, func- he said he's able to do this job and function really well because when dramatic things happen, and they do in his organization, he's able to respond with a lot of equanimity and spaciousness and clarity while everyone else is getting kind of freaked out and really worried about what's happening and, and, and not being very clear because it's only later that his emotions catch up and he kind of realizes the impact of what went on. But while it's happening, he's just calm and, and able to be very... So he does really well at his job. But he says around shopping that um, he's often complimented on his business attire. 
uh, you know, that he's very well turned out and matching and tasteful and everything. And he, sa he said to us, I don't have a clue about that kind of thing. I just go to this big department store. They have a personal shopper there. And she takes me around and she says, buy two of these and three of these and put this together. And she pins these notes on the outfits and says, this goes with this. And I get them out of the, you know, the cupboard and I put them together and it works. He said, I don't have a clue how to do that myself. So I just go, you know, every now and then I'll go and shop and I mean, to the shop and she'll tell me what to buy. And the microphone got handed on to some other people and then back to him. And he said, you know, I have to clarify that last thing I said. He said, I never think about it. She said, she calls me and says, it's time for you to come in and do some <laughs> shopping. And I go and she, you know, she shops and I bring it home. And said, that's the only way I can do it. And, you know, so you work, if you're a deluded type, you work out how to make these things work. And they all, you know, the deluded type has beautiful qualities. As I said, a lot of equanimity, a lot of spaciousness, a lot of kindness, because they don't have this tendency to, you know, want the best just for themselves or to have a sharp edge. So lots of positive aspects to this. But all of us have this tendency. All of us have this opportunity to have delusion manifest. How can you tell when it's operating? When we hold on to how we want things to be rather than how they actually are. It's so hard to know this, but this is what's happening. And I, I've, the Talmud says, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. Basically, again, pointing to, I spoke a little bit about this earlier, about perception, how we're always filtering, always seeing through this lens of our conditioned habits. And so it distorts. It distorts what we actually see. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. And we try to match. We try to kind of grapple with experience to make it fit how we want it to be. This is delusion. And so again, through this filtering, we, we choose not to see things that don't support our view of things, and we hold on to the ones that do. We're doing this so much at the time. I saw this really clearly. Um, I was Every fall, we teach together at IMS, a long retreat, six weeks, just like this one. And one of the few things there are to do around IMS, it's Barry in the middle of nowhere, is to go for walks, and I love to go for walks, but I always like to go on new hikes, new walks, so I'm always trying to find guidebooks or whatever about where to go on walks, and I'm taking all these people on walks. I've shown people who've lived there for years, I've taken them on walks they didn't know about because they don't have this interest that I do, but anyway, so I'm always collecting people who go on walks, and I'll have this book, and you know, the hardest thing about a hike is getting started, finding the starting point and then getting going, so... On this hike, you know, it had, well, you know, you walk for a few hundred yards and you should see a marshy point on the left and then you walk up an uphill and then there'll be some, it's quite detailed, you know, some pines on the right and then you do this and that and you'll see these things. And so we start walking along this thing and we're talking and chatting and I'm, I'm always the one with the guidebook trying to keep track and after a while I'm just a little unsure, you know. It doesn't seem to be exactly matching. You know, I said, marshy on the left and we look over... Well, it's a little damp over there, you know, maybe that, that's probably it. So we keep walking, pine forest on the right. Well, there's a few pine trees 
you know, maybe that's it. It said it should go uphill. Well, kind of going up. So we keep going, you know, trying to match what we're seeing to what's in the book. And the further and further we go, of course, it's looking less and less like what the book is saying it should be. But I hate giving up and going backwards. It's like, you know, it can't be that wrong. Maybe we'll find a turn and we'll just get on to the right path. We'll, we'll, you know, there'll be a signpost or something. So we keep going until finally we've walked, you know, for quite a way and we meet these people and say, do you know this trail? Are we on this trail? And they go... That's miles back, you know. And I, 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 I keep having the idea, well, maybe we've been going in a circle and we'll... Ca-. And they say, no, 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 you've gone in complete. So we just have to turn around because, you know, I wouldn't give up on trying to match what I was seeing to what the book said. I wanted it to be so because I didn't want to have to go backwards. I, you know, I've, we see it again and again. It's easier to see in others that it, than it is in ourselves. Have you noticed that? But it's any time you have this thought, what were they thinking? You know, what was I thinking? What were they thinking? Another experience I had was, you know, and you just see, sometimes it's just a flash of delusion. You know, the, the words come through and you can catch it. Again, I was a yogi at IMS practicing on this long retreat, and it's a bit like here, you know, when the weather gets cold, it gets really cold there. And people all of a sudden are aware they don't have enough warm things. So, you know, where you walk, it's much more enclosed there, and you walk through the front lobby all the time, and that's where the mail comes in. And as the, it gets colder and colder, all these boxes start arriving. And you're walking by, what, who's getting all these boxes, all this mail arriving, these big boxes, different shapes? And, of course, you know, as a yogi, it's not a lot, not a lot happening a lot of the time. So it's like, who's, where? And so you see L.L. Bean, you know, Land's End, all this stuff. I'm sort of, how are these people ordering? You know, you're a yogi. Where are the catalogs and ordering? But it's every day, more boxes coming. And then I start to feel kind of bereft, you know. No boxes for me. I'm not ordering anything. And then the thought comes through my mind, and I still remember it. Why doesn't L.L. Bean send me something? It was like I was really miffed, you know. So the ladies at L.L. Bean should be saying, well, Sally hasn't ordered anything for a while. Why don't we send her a nice jacket? And I remember it took me a little while to actually sort of go, what are you thinking? L.L. Bean should just send me a box. That's delusion. We want things to be, we make reality what we want it to be. I, my first talk, I, I, I was talking about right view and delusion, so I included a bit of my, one of my favorite columns, you remember News of the Weird, where this guy takes the, all of the weird bits of news. I mean, these days, you don't even have to go to News of the Weird, really, do you? I, believe me, in the time you've been gone, it's all... It's only more of the same, only worse, you know? You just read it and you go, this can't be happening. They can't be serious. So we have to turn to news of the weird just so we can actually not take it that seriously. So here's one, good column, least competent criminals from Sacramento, so it's close by. Sudan Provost, 40, walked into the River City Bank in Sacramento, California, reported the Sacramento Bee quietly announced to employees that he had come to rob the bank 
but then handed a teller his driver's license and a money order to be cashed. Remember I said last time these had become so common they're no longer weird? Well, this is one. The teller asked if he had an account, and Provost replied, this is not a joke. I have a gun. I do this for a living. <laughs> However, he opened his bag to reveal that he had no gun and then asked for a tissue for his runny nose. <laughs> the teller said she didn't have one. Provost said he'd be right back and walked across the street to the drugstore. And by the time he had returned, the police were on the scene. Provost was arrested on suspicion of attempted robbery. What was he thinking? You know, it's like... But there's, this is replicated over and over again. You know, so this is extreme examples, but we do this all the time. We want to believe that reality accords with our view of it. So we mush reality around to make that so, and then we cling to that. This is the way things are. This is how things should be. And we filter, we take in only what meets that projection, what meets our ideas of things. And we can do that and create a whole pessimistic world that's terrible, where things are bad and wrong, and I'm bad and wrong and unworthy. Or we can have this distorted sense of optimism and things will work out, um, that things will be okay. Again, how many times have we kind of had this lurking, nagging suspicion that things weren't going to be okay, but we went ahead anyway? You know, it'll be okay. You know, it can't be that bad. It'll work out. Again, my, my example, that's the trouble with this talk, you get to talk about your delusions, uh, the delusion of youth. Um, when I left Australia in the early 80s, I was in my mid-20s, and I spent a year and a half in Asia, mainly in India and Nepal, and I did a lot of trekking. And this one, I did some on my own, but some I was joined by my boyfriend at the time, who was a real outdoor guy, always wanted to you know, do the most and the best and the hardest and the highest kind of thing. And so he convinced us that we should do this trek that had just opened up called Manang to Muktanath. That was the circuit. The Jomasam Trail was really, you know, people had done that for years up and back. This was going up the other side and connecting to that trail over a 17,500 foot pass. So that whole side had just opened up. There were no tea shops or hotels or anything very much. And we just went on our own. We didn't have guides or porters or anything. We had a one-man tent for the two of us and a little stove and some food and not enough money because we had to rent down parkas and we calculated for the rent but not the deposit. And so we had to set off. We couldn't go back. So we set off with barely enough money, not much food. And that actually wasn't so bad. We survived all that. But then we, to get over this pass, you had to be... Um, we went to a little, the last village, which was about probably 10,000 feet, and stay there for a day or so to acclimatize. Then you go and camp at about 12 or 13,000 feet, right at the snow line, because um, you have to get up at three before dawn to go over the pass where, when the snow is still hard and hasn't melted yet. We'd already heard that someone had died a couple of weeks earlier trying to do it. Um, we found someone up there. He was staying in this little shepherd's hut because um, he couldn't make it over. 
And that night we made it to, to the camp. It was freezing, edge of the snow line. We didn't have, you know, I had plastic bags over my socks because I didn't have good boots. And my boyfriend, Clive, started to show signs of delirium. Now, I'm no expert, but I'd heard about altitude sickness. But I hoped that in the morning he'd be better. So we wake him, I wake him up in the morning because he didn't wake up on his own. And he wasn't much better. But the options were go back. Go back two weeks. It had taken us only three weeks to get here. Very hard hiking. We didn't have much money. And over the, this pass on the other side was apple pie and ice cream, basically. You know, because there's hotels and restaurants on. There was food. We, and I was so hungry by this point. But to get there, we had to go. So this was a choice. And what did I do? It can't be that serious. He can't be that serious. He's young and healthy. I mean, I don't even know if I thought about it. I just got him dressed, and I pushed him over that pass. I mean, literally, he was holding onto my coat, walking, you know, step by step, slogging, and then down the other side. I mean, luckily, he was young and healthy, and he made it. But it's like, what was I thinking? I was thinking apple pie and ice cream, and I, I just couldn't bear the thought of going back. So I, I literally pushed him over this pass. It's, a, it's amazing. Later, you know, he survived, obviously, and later on, we, he tried to get us hiking in the, Himalaya, the Pakistani Himalayas, which was another whole trip, and then he got really sick with viral meningitis, what turned out to be, and there I, I kind of saved him, so I, there was a little karmic payback then. <laughs> because um, I had to, you know, get him back down out of, out of the foothills there. But we do this, you know, we think, it c what can go wrong? You know, what can go wrong with this situation? This is magical thinking, as they call it. And that we were talking about this in the staff room a while ago. Another staff person told her story where she was in London working, wanting to work. She wanted to get a job as a nanny. She's American. And, uh, the requirement that she should be able to drive. Well, she, again, she said, how hard can it be? A stick shift in London on the other side of the road. How hard can it be? So she sets off the first day, you know, to go pick the kids up from day school or whatever, and she gets in, and she's like, crunch, crunch. She has no clue. She's on the wrong side of the road. London traffic is all roundabouts, and it's huge. And it was just impossible. And she said, luckily, she said, this very British man in the bowler hat and a briefcase saw what was happening and jumped in and, you know, managed to get her car out of the road and where she needed it to go. But that thought, how hard can it be? She said, I can't believe that I, I thought that. So what we're doing when this happens is we're filtering what's out there, filtering experience to make it meet, make it meet this need we have to match our desires, our delusions, our wants, our fears, and we're distorting it. And you can see that central in that is me. It's all about me. And this is a classic way we get deluded. When we are in a situation and it's all about me. It, we lose touch with, with the greater um, situation, with the community, with other people, and it's all about me. This is so uh, typical of delusion. A classic way this can develop 
here on retreat is something we call yogi mind. I'm sure many of you know about it, but that same thing that happens when we lose perspective. And it's understandable, you know, on a long retreat like this, especially we're in our inner world, we're not having that to and fro of relationships and conversations with people, so we can get a little lost in this and, and blow things out of proportion, blow things out of perspective. All of the notes that you've written, a lot of them are out of this uh, functioning of yogi mind, where something just seems so important that someone should know this or take care of this or change this or do this differently. A classic, one of my favorites, was written some time ago. Manager got this note from a yogi on a long retreat where they said, you know when I'm out doing walking meditation, I've noticed that the planes fly low, really o a lot overhead, really low. Can you call the airport and get them to change the flight platen? Because it's really disturbing my meditation. <laughs> this is a loss of perspective. <laughs> you know, and it's all about me and my walking path. Another way this classically manifests, we call VVs and VRs. VR, Vipassana Romance. When the situation is you come on retreat and the eye just happens to light upon someone who just seems to represent everything that's good and beautiful in the world. And as we think in this person and you know, dwell on them, we can go through a whole creation of a relationship and a romance and a, a wedding, and then often it even gets to the breakup and the divorce even before you even know this person's name. But we cre create this whole world, this whole fantasy with this person that we don't even often know the name of. Vipassana romance, and you can just see how you take the little pieces of information about what they like or what they wear and how we'd like the same poetry and I know we'd go for hikes together and the same music, we're just meant to be together. And it's just out of nothing. And then the same happens, VV, Vipassana Vendetta. For some reason or another, Someone represents everything that's wrong with the world. They're, they're inconsiderate, or they're oblivious, or they're too speedy, or they're too slow, or they, they take up too much space, or whatever. And all you can notice about them is what's wrong with them. And everything that's irritating about the retreat gets kind of focused on this person. Lack of perception, lack of, sorry, perspective on this. We, if you notice either of these happening, you know, just step back a little and try to actually see what's here, what's actually happening in these situations. It's, it, we, we, you know, we always say to people, don't make big decisions when you're on retreat. You know, yogi mind means you don't have a full perspective. There can be so much clarity yet we're not in our normal way of relating to experience. So really important to pay attention to. If the mind is going off on these big stories about things, let that flag wave a little bit. Might not actually be the truth of things. Check it out. You know, Come talk to us first before you start believing some of these stories. Another common way that delusion can get going is when we're having neutral experiences. We talked about this with Vedna, 
you know, the pleasant we tend to grasp onto, the unpleasant push away. When things are neutral, when things are easy or calm, the mind can space out about that, not notice, and it goes off into fantasy, or it goes looking for a project, looking for a problem. Really helpful to begin to notice neutral and neutral Vedana and see if we can actually connect with that and get more interested. That actually allows us to stay present. On a long retreat, you are going at times to have periods, maybe even long periods, of neutral experiences where it's just the breath and body sensations. There's not a lot of drama. There's not a lot of uh, excitement happening, good or bad, in the meditation. And so we can sometimes take those times and really just go into these fantasies and thought patterns and make up stories about things because we're not quite willing to be with the neutral. So really getting curious about this. Neutral can often lead us to label our experience as boring. This is boring, nothing's happening. Really important to question that. Boredom is just a lack of interest in what's happening and it often is actually a label we put on what's actually quite a wholesome experience of calm or quiet, or peace. Start to get interested in these places where not a lot is happening and see that either there is stuff happening you can get interested in or it's actually pleasant. That calm or peace or simplicity have a beautiful quality of pleasantness to them because the mind isn't so pushed and pulled by aversion or grasping. So really important to begin to notice this. Ajahn Sumedho, who gives great teachings on, on delusion and ignorance, says if you start with avidya, that's delusion or ignorance, you'll always end up in suffering. If you start with ignorance, you'll always end up with suffering. And he says, so instead, it sounds quite obvious, start with wisdom. And then that will lead to freedom or happiness. He says, I encourage you to start not from avidya, from ignorance, but from awareness, vidya, and wisdom, panya. Be that wisdom itself rather than a person who isn't wise trying to become wise. As long as you hold to the view that I'm not wise yet, but I hope to become wise, you, you'll end up with grief, sorrow, despair, and anguish. It's that direct. It's learning to trust in being the wisdom now, being awake, even though you may feel emotionally inadequate, doubtful or uncertain, frightened or terrified of it. I think that's so powerful. He's not saying you need to be different. Wisdom isn't something that you get by, you know, figuring things out and reading and studying. It's here right now. Be the wisdom. And the wisdom is just the knowing what's happening, getting as clear as we can in this moment. And then we're starting from wisdom. Then freedom and happiness are more likely to come. If we're lost in confusion, if we're believing 
that we're confused. If we're saying, I'm a confused person, I don't know what's happening, then we probably end up in more delusion. But if we can just keep coming back to what's actually here, then there's a possibility of actually waking up. And so this is what our practice is about. This simple practice of mindfulness is all about knowing what's happening. Knowing what's happening in the mind, knowing what's happening in the body. I mean, its basics are so simple, and I know how complex it is, but just to trust, keeping on coming back to that, internally and externally, that the wisdom is right there. Not somewhere else, not some future place, but knowing this experience, knowing its nature, as we keep saying, this is conditioned, this is impermanent, this too will change. But we can know that, we can know this experience. And so it doesn't even have to change, doesn't have to become pleasant, doesn't have to become perfect, but our relationship to it changes as we know it, as it is, we know the truth of it. It's impermanent, it's conditioned, it's changing. It's not me, it's not mine. It's just the nature of things. As we do this again and again and again, faith and trust get developed. We start to be able to trust that we can know what's happening. We can know when the mind is moving to delusion, when we're actually not being in the moment with some clarity. We start to have faith in that and trust in our very ability to be present. And it's as simple as the more moments of mindfulness we have, the more future moments of mindfulness we're likely to have. It just builds very naturally like that. So we don't have to be in a fog, a little disconnected, but in this moment, in the mystery that is this moment, in the the beauty, the amazement of this moment, And so we wake up. That's why all these words point to this. Enlightenment. Waking up. Bringing light to, clarity to the situation. With as as much awareness of the filters and as few filters as possible. That we can know this truth. Even if our experience is challenging. You know, even if the hindrances are present. If we're caught in some storm. To know that it's impermanent, that's wisdom, that's not delusion. We can bring that kind of waking up to our experience. I want to end with a reading from Ajahn Chah, the teacher of Ajahn Sumedho. Again, such a wise being that would just point so simply and directly again and again to freedom being found if we stay present not having to do much more than that, but just present and aware of what's happening. This is what he says. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe, and mental states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. 
It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them here and you will know every one of them well. Then your mind will at last be at peace. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. Be present right here and right now with what's happening and this peace, happiness and freedom is accessible, not needing to go anywhere else or have anything be different. Let's just let the words settle into silence for a moment. your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.